Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand messaging alive via original or value-added digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the producer and co-host of Pop Health Week and publisher of ACLWatch.com. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host of Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Let's start up front with the U.S. COVID-19 dashboard that the CDC prepares. I think this frames uh, pretty much our conversation today. Total cases since January 21st, 2020 is now crossing the 8 million threshold at 8,249,000 and change cases with 60,000 plus new cases just reported in, in the last 24 hours. While total deaths approach the quarter million mark at 220,362 and 863 of those deaths were reported just since yesterday's count, deaths are the best indicator of progression of the pandemic, although there's generally a 17 to 21 day lag between infection and deaths that are reported. So a grim picture, only likely to get worse as we enter the fall and winter seasons. For instance, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, also known as IHME at the University of Washington School of Medicine, which is often quoted in the media and early on in the pandemic by the White House Coronavirus Task Force, is forecasting just shy of 400,000 COVID deaths by February 1st, 2021. So that's not a pretty picture. So Fred, my background is in public health. You're an expert in population health who came into the sector through what preceded population health, uh, known as the disease management industry. Let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing. And perhaps let's put this in the frame of population health versus public health. And what are the two telling us at this stage? Well, it's a great question, Greg. And obviously those statistics are just mind boggling in a sense. As we look at it, you know, from within the field and think about it from either a public health or a population health perspective. And as we head into the fall, these numbers look like they're getting worse. Uh, just saw recently in Jacksonville or actually in Florida, we, we cleared the 5,000 threshold for uh, infections during one day again, and it's coming back up. So ultimately, if you think about this, let's take a th- let's unbundle population health a little bit. And I think we ought to unbundle public health a little bit, and the two of us can kind of weigh in on that. But Population health was initially coined as a phrase by Dr. David Kindig, and, uh, in which he said it is the, the uh, outcomes of a group of individuals and the distribution of those outcomes within the group. So you essentially had healthy people to sick people or low risk to high risk. And what was the distribution in there? And the way to really think about this from a population health perspective is we've measured these health outcomes, and then we want to measure them again and see, did they get better or did they get worse? Did the population's overall health improve or did the population's health overall health get worse? And it sort of then flowed into this model by Dee Eddington around health risks, which looked at over time, people, obviously as you age, get more health risks. 
they become at risk for diabetes or then get diabetes and get at risk for all these indicators and diseases. And he called that the natural flow. I think, um, as we've talked about, the CDC has this definition. It's similar to the World Health Organization definition. Population health is an interdisciplinary, customizable approach that allows health departments to connect practice po to policy for change to happen locally. This approach utilizes non-traditional partnerships among different sectors of the community, public health, industry, academia, healthcare, local government entities, etc., to achieve positive health outcomes. What I find interesting is that this definition sets the locus as the public health department. But we've really seen the whole population health industry come at it from a different side and come at it from the healthcare system side, vendor side, disease management side early on, as you mentioned. So it's a little bit of a, a shift as I read that. And as we've talked about with David Nash, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, David really thought and appeared to me that population health, similar to precision medicine, is a subset. Public health is a subset of the broader population health. It's a piece, a big piece that needs to fit into that broader model. You coming from the public health side, how do you see that? Well, here's the key question, and we did touch on this, uh, I think, a couple of sessions ago about this intersection between public health and population health and where are they congruent and where might they be going in different directions. I really think they're basically the same. It just simply translates into what you just referred to as connecting practice to policy for change to happen locally. Now, unfortunately, according to David Nash, the underfunding of public health is just egregious when you compare it to the traditional spend for health insurance in this country, whether it's government provided and or private. The discrepancy is the per capita payment for, or funding for public health is in the $275 per year versus he quoted the $20,000 spend for an average family premium. So health departments are chronically underfunded. They're the poor second cousin, whereas we value the acute healthcare system which COVID-19 has now spotlighted in terms of these major deficiencies that we're being presented with based on these two cultures. They seem to operate congruently at times when there's an epidemic, Ebola, COVID, but historically it has been a pretty passive relationship, mostly driven by specific reporting requirements. But by and large, these are really two siloed worlds that don't intersect with each other much unless there's an epidemic. And what we're seeing now is we're faced with all sorts of crises around episodic payment for healthcare versus the lens on the population as a whole. And we just still haven't figured out how we're going to deal with this. The gaps are many, the, the policy issues are everywhere, including what's covered, what isn't, pre-existing conditions, will the ACA be repealed, what protection will come in in its place. So the difference between the two is not just cultural, it's funding and it's organizational policy and distribution at the service level. So I see opportunities here to get these two worlds working in simpatico, working together in ways that they historically haven't. And I've joked before that maybe at some point we ought to consider having dual reporting relationships between hospital CEOs and 
health officers at the county or state level. I mean, you want to you want to talk about uh, some pushback from that one? Uh, I've already heard it, but I, if you think of it logically, well, there might be something there. If not direct reporting, dotted line relationships, so there's at least the opportunity to collaborate. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It does, because what we what we really saw, and, and so if you sort of unbundle that concept of underfunded public health, where you're really seeing it in the COVID pandemic, and where it, it just clears a bell to me, is this issue of contact tracing. And that's typically a function of public health departments. But in a numerous instances in places where we've been working with folks, the local public health department has told them, you need to do your own contact tracing. We don't have the resources in place to do that. And that's what I find, uh, you know, one of the clear examples of a, an underfunded situation, let alone being able to have the respect that these organizations deserve, which has clearly affected their ability to message uh, the country about the right things to do. And that, too, goes back to uh, initial funding a as well. I do think that you've seen the private sector and hospitals in particular have tried to pick up some of this stuff in terms of treatment. They've obviously learned how to better treat individuals during the crisis. Hospitals and the health systems got whacked, as we've seen, because of the fee-for-service market and what happened when we turned off the spigot for elective surgeries and outpatient visits and all of those things in anticipation of large influxes of patients with COVID-19. And I think that that pointed out, obviously, as we've talked about, this issue of the need to move to a different reimbursement model and possibly the need for hospitals to consider making their living off something other than I'm going to replace every single knee I see and I'm going to do this or that to more general basic improvement of population so perhaps we don't have to improve those, replace those knees or hips or some of those things, which um, it'll take some time to get to. But clearly something I think that the pandemic has shown, we've seen the issues with payment models, we've seen the issues with providers not being able to survive, and uh, hopefully those thoughts that we've seen convert into real changes as we go forward. Well said, Brad. I'd put it this way. What has COVID exposed? To me, it's exposing how ill-suited our public, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or other government-funded and private primarily commercial health plans, the book of business or payer class driven nature of financing and delivery is just completely ill-equipped to deal with pandemic threats to the nation's public health. So lots of lessons to learn once we do our, if you will, postmortem <laughs> when we're on the other yeah. side of this, which isn't happening anytime soon, unfortunately. What we're seeing because of the massive shutdowns of elective surgeries and uh, 80, 90% of our health systems are still very much on a fee-for-service, heads-in-beds model. When they cut off that fire hose, obviously they were hurting and hurting big time, ergo all the CARES Act funding and support for hospitals, health systems, physicians, etc. What seemed to weather that storm were those systems that were taking a all-in population-based payment approach or capitation. They were getting paid whether or not people were showing up for surgery or office visits or you name it. But so it's really put, I think, value-based healthcare and specifically capitation in the conversation as being a much more agile and perhaps durable way for our health systems to actually serve the needs of the public. Yeah, I think that agility point you make is right on target because they could quickly pivot 
while, as you know, we had this huge shift to telehealth and telemedicine, for the, for the rest of the community that wasn't under a capitated model to shift, what, it, what had to happen? Someone had to create a CPT code and say, yes, you can go ahead and bill us for those services now. And then they were able to become agile in a sense. But it required, the shift required a payment setting up of another code. And what I think we're going to see coming out of this, while everyone is sort of hoping this is going to push the move to value-based care quicker, some of these healthcare systems, and I was talking to one earlier this week, dug such deep holes in their inpatient systems from the lack of services that they are just ramping up fee-for-service as fast as they can to try to dig their way out of the hole and aren't even considering at this point moving anything to value-based care until they can get back some of that lost revenue. And so it may actually create this split where the groups that were already further along can continue to advance that way and the others are going to hang back for a longer period of time under fee-for-service in an effort to recoup a ton of revenue that they lost. And that, I fear, is going to be the primary strategy of most U.S. healthcare systems because they're just trying to make up for lost time. And I get it. you got a sandbag somewhere. So let's build the revenue as quickly as possible. And where is that going to happen? It's in a fee-for-service model. But longer term, I just don't see it as the answer. And it remains to be seen whether health system leadership get religion, you know, over the long term once they stop thinking short-term fixes. Right. So let's sort of dive into some areas, I think, where population health could assist. As, whether in the pandemic or as we go forward. And the first area is population health is all about data and analytics. It's built on data. Now, a lot of data companies will say we do population health. No, they provide the data that flows through the system that a population health program then takes and does the full programmatics to improve the health of that population. It's a critical underlying piece. And as we've seen with COVID, there's an incredible wealth, or in some cases, dearth of data in, in areas about what's going on, who's being impacted, which individuals are more likely to have serious complications, and all of that should be coming in to create assessments and identify risks. Is it communities at risk, individuals at risk? And we're hearing those, and so people are beginning to think into a, in a population health framework by looking at the data and saying, wow, look at its impact on the minority communities. It's really adversely impacting them. So that's a higher risk group. We need to figure out what resources we need to throw into that mix to reduce that risk, what sort of interventions we can provide. That's sort of looking at this from a population health approach of identify your population. Well, we're looking at the United States. Assess them. Here's the data coming in. Stratify them based on those assessments. These are the high risk communities, low risk communities, moderate risk communities. Engage the community, get them involved and then throw your interventions in there. What are we going to do to reduce that risk, to mitigate those bad results, and then measure it and see did we get an improvement in our outcomes and shift that population to a healthier status? So from that perspective, I think there are some lessons we can learn and things we can do now, given the data that's flowing into the system, and put it into this population health system. And much of what we could do is around public health. It's improving those public health issues that these communities face. Well said, Fred. Eloquently so. But what's in the way? I mean, why aren't we doing what seems to be such logical, basic blocking and tackling in the public health domain, as well as the population health add-ons of focusing and risk stratifying? Why are we not doing that? So we've talked about this a number of times. 
What's the estimated waste in healthcare? Waste fraud and abuse? 25%, Greg. 50%, I think, a PWC study said at one point. So how much are we spending on healthcare now? Three-something trillion, right? Yeah. So if we were to just say a quarter of that, what could we do with $800 billion applied into some of these communities or these sectors where we know the social determinants are having such an adverse impact? You know, whether it was better housing, food, transportation, access to care, education, it's a substantial amount of money. And if you're just tuning into Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein and I are discussing the intersections between public health, population health, and our acute health care system. If the U.S. death rates were comparable to low mortality countries, for instance, Australia, the U.S. would have had 187,661 fewer deaths, a 94% reduction in deaths. I mean, so if that's not enough of an incentive to get people moving in the right direction, I really don't know what could be. It is. It, it absolutely is. But I think actually, I think we heard this at the colloquium where DeSalvo said, yes, this is what we need to be doing, but I think the forces that don't want to move that direction that are currently getting the money are going to be not as likely to do it as we hoped, I think is how she sort of phrased that during that presentation. And that's really the issue is, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change some industries pretty heavily or potentially impact um, certain sectors pretty heavily if we took that out. Well, many of us have been in this space a while, and it feels like a Sisyphusian challenge of uh, pushing that boulder up a hill. It seems sensible, you know, uh, global practice of good public health across the board, and in this case, perhaps a national mask mandate, you know, a, a enforcement of social distancing to the extent that's possible, and proper hygiene, but focusing on the at-risk populations you know, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, chronic conditions will definitely uh, bring us to where we're going to get a better return on the dollars that we invest. So harmonizing policy with practice, to me, is the major obstacle. And why, uh, why, <laughs> why that exists seems to be a mystery, mystery to me. Not really. You know, you got to follow the incentives. The, the incentive, show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. And right now we're still under a fee-for-service model predominantly, and we're hearing conversations in bundles and value-based care and capitation and various forms of value-based contracting. But for the most part, we're still not incentivizing the kind of alignment that we require in order to bridge social determinants with population health, with public health, in an acute care model. Right. So imagine if we took your concept of this dotted line of public health, hospital authority kind of deal, and instead of an accountable care organization, do what uh, David Nash and I wrote about a number of years ago, an accountable health organization, and had a community oversight board that included the health care system, public health, the schools, housing, the transportation authority, and you began to look at all the pieces of revenue in that community from healthcare to housing to food, et cetera, and began to say, how do we maximize our health outcomes of our community by coordinating and redistributing some of these resources? 
And I think that's where it is. And the resources could come from that excess we see in the healthcare system, as well as asking for more and better decision making regarding current spending, as well as organizations. I think Esther Dyson, who we've interviewed a number of times, said, you know, when she first started the way to Wellville, one of the early things I learned was these community-based organizations measure process, but they don't measure outcomes. And I won't work with them unless they measure outcomes, was her quote. And I believe that's really important. It's one thing to say, wow, our, our organization contacted 500 people last month. Well, that's great. Did any of them get any better? Did you have any outcomes to show that your intervention made a difference in that community? We've seen it year after year after year, the numbers don't get any better, but we do have organizations working in that area. So as we look to move the funding and the resources to better improve the overall community's health, everybody needs to be accountable in that equation, the healthcare system, as well as the not-for-profits, the government, the school systems, et cetera. I like it. Very well said, Fred. And it's very calmly spoken. (laughs) Yes, uh, it's great. So, you know, there are threads or pockets of innovation here where there's more or less promise to see this kind of alignment and cooperation by potentially competitive institutions. Where are you seeing some innovation in in the population health theater? Where where can we look to see perhaps, for instance, the Humana Bold Gold program? You know, what's happening there? Where where are we integrating county health rankings and broad measures of health status in a specific population and initiatives that are designed to basically move that needle? Where where are you seeing seeing that happen? Anywhere? It's early. I mean, the Bold Gold program is a good example. I think the way to Wellville is another one, and they're all making some sort of a difference. The question is, is the difference large enough to actually move the needle in the community? And so I don't think we've yet seen large-scale enough interventions to be able to say, yes, we moved this community's needle to a healthier status on an overall basis. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've, Im- we've improved the health for 500 people with diabetes mm-hmm. in this community, or we've done this or that, which is all good. It's a start. But the other thing that Esther Dyson said at one point is, if you're, don't do pilots. I think she says something like, pilots are crack, like crack <laughs> cocaine. Build something that's scalable from the start and shoot to make it community-wide. Mm. And I think that's a, a, a really good advice. You're seeing things like, I think it's Kaiser paying for housing. Some others, I think even United is doing that, and Humana is obviously doing their things. We're also seeing some innovations, as we've talked to a bunch on this show with the guests we've had with uh, these capitated primary care providers who are looking broader. We're seeing also this movement from the the Dr. Spans at the new medical school in Houston and uh, the other deans at Geisinger, et cetera, who we've talked to who are are integrating community into their training programs Mm -hmm. and thinking about how to train physicians to work in these newer models and newer approaches out in the community. Dell Medical School is another example. And so they're early. I think Philadelphia is trying to do a lot of work, whether it's Jefferson or Penn and some of their initiatives in those communities. And hopefully we continue to build on those. But I think it's early, and we really need to figure out how to get a hold of this healthcare, disparate, siloed, high-cost system, as you mentioned early. The difference between the public health spend and the healthcare spend is unbelievable. I just, for the fun of it the other day, got on the website to look for health insurance to see what it might cost if I had to buy it for the family. Obviously, we get it through uh, my wife's work. And it was $2,200 a month 
with a astronomical out-of-pocket family expense, co-pays, etc. So you're looking at probably 30 grand in total if you ring the bell on that baby. And that's just unbelievable. Yeah, and what world do you have to live for that to be somehow okay? I thought it was the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And, and I know yeah. the idea was let's get everybody covered. Great right. concept. Great concept. But if you don't change the underlying basis for right. how that mechanism works, and they yeah. knew that, they, they recognized it post-passage um, yeah. that we didn't deal with costs. That's what we need to do. Well, Keep that baby there, right? And let's start dealing with costs. And and one of the uh, unfortunate legacies of the quote Affordable Care Act is is the memorialization or the institutionalization of high deductible health plans because in the metals program because it was a trade off between coverage and cost, they had to create these tiered relationships between benefits coverage and price. So it was just a beginning, and if we had spent just a modicum of the time to repeal and replace it to actually fix it, we might be in a different situation today. But it's going to take massive re-engineering of an acute care health system that is inefficient and wholly inappropriately regulated. But let me go back to my question earlier. I think the pockets we're seeing, everyone loves Medicare Advantage now. And we're seeing enormous uh, VC interest and entries into a fairly mature market because there's been a lot of players in Medicare Advantage over the decade plus. The, again, it's pockets. You know, you, you, you've got the innovation at that level, but you've got essentially fee-for-service starved health systems that are just not really excited about reducing their inflows. Yeah, so, you know, and that sort of points to this thing you're seeing as we've talked about as well, these whole pay-vider movement. You know, the, the insurers are becoming providers. United just uh, has a huge number of physicians that they employ around the country in practices, and Humana with Conviva and their other Capitate primary care networks and the others you're seeing get into that. And the question is, could you take out the middle layer and just provide the funds to the healthcare system? And would they be happier and then switch their approach because they're, because they're getting those funds straight up instead of through a fee-for-service system? Uh, and I think that's where we'd like to get to. The question is, as we've seen also, is who within the healthcare system ultimately drives where those dollars go? Is it the is it the hospital or the primary care doctors or which group? And we see variations in terms of how that gets spent and what the effects are on overall outcomes and quality depending on who's doing it. Well, it seems like there's lots to choose from and places where you can put your bet as to where the future will lie, but I definitely think it's going to be somewhere in a value-based context versus our historical reliance on a fee-for-service, siloed, independent, non-coordinated model. So we'll see. We're getting close. Absolutely. In my mind, COVID has exposed the issues. Everyone knows that. They see them. Population health is a way to come out of that by linking that value-based care to quality and outcomes improvements and integrating public health into that equation so some of those funds flow into the public health arena. Such a perfect close, Fred. That is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleague and partner in Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, for his insights today. So please, everyone, we can get through this only together. So do mask up when in public, practice social distancing, and pay attention to personal hygiene. We can slow the spread of this deadly virus. Bye now.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.